good to be back with you today. You may or may not have missed us, but we were absent uh, the first Sunday for my mother's uh, 95th birthday, which we thoroughly enjoyed. Our, all of my siblings able to be together with uh, many of my nieces and nephews there in Lenox, Massachusetts. And then uh, last Sunday, I had the privilege of officiating in the baptism of two grandchildren. I uh, had a wonderful time. We missed you, thought of you as we met together with God's people, both at uh, Hope Church in Lenox and also at uh, Lookout Mountain Press, so nearby. Talked to Dennis last night. He sends his love and his concern for the congregation. I think he was a little worried about my preaching. But... Uh, he held, held his tongue, and uh, he promised that he'd be listening or watching this morning on live stream. So I uh, want to greet our live stream audience and even wish a happy birthday to Madison today. Uh, she celebrates her birthday. And also, let me greet our overflow audience or our overflow congregation uh, down below because that's my, our growth group, Doug Levengood and myself. Meeting Sundays at 6. You're welcome to come. Tonight should be fireworks. I'm preaching, and then we're discussing my sermon. So I, I really got it coming at me from several directions today. But, uh, yeah, we would encourage you, if you're not already a part of a growth group, to be a part of a growth group. It is a way in which we are able to shepherd our, own, our whole congregation. And you have... Now in your pews, these welcome connection cards. If you're a visitor today, have not filled one out, you can put it in the offering uh, when the offering plate is passed. But we'd love to be able to get your email and your cell number and contact you, welcome you in that way, and also know how we can pray for you, as Rob said earlier. Very important part of our life as a, as a church and a congregation. Our text this morning is from Ephesians 2, beginning in the 11th verse. I, I know how Dennis feels. He, uh, he chose Ephesians, and he's been preaching through it quite passionately, three sermons on the first part of chapter 2. And then he's got a whole other 11 verses to entrust to his associate pastor. Not exactly sure where that's going to leave him in chapter 3, but... Uh, what a wonderful text and what a wonderful book Ephesians is. I bet among the books that we read in the Bible, we probably turn to Ephesians uh, more than any other New Testament uh, writing. I, I wouldn't at all be surprised if that were true. Let's hear then the Word of God beginning in the 11th verse. Therefore, the Apostle Paul writes, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility 
by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus, the whole structure, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Amen. God's holy word. Let's turn to him in prayer together. Oh Lord, our God, how wonderful to have the sacred text. To understand things that only your Holy Spirit could reveal. Things that reflect the very mind of the triune God and reveal the purposes of the triune God and the end of the story that we all await with anxiousness. So grant today that we might rejoice in this holy word and in the Christ who is the subject of it and his precious promises. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you took note of the questions in the bulletin, uh, you know that uh, one of the first things that we see in the text is the exhortation to remember. Therefore, remember. And so we want to do, this is a book about the wonderful and rich truth that God reveals in his sacred word and about you and me. And the two are woven together in a majestic way so that we read in the sacred script our own testimony. And Paul intended it to be so. Now, when you think about your story, of course, you think you know it well. No one better could tell your story. I remember when my dad was in a Southern Gospel Quartet and they used to sing a Southern Gospel song. Uh, I was there when it happened, speaking of conversion. And uh, I know that Christ indeed uh, saved my soul. So we think of our own story in that way. But the truth of the matter is, if you were to ask your dad or your mom what, how to relate your story, they probably related it a little bit differently. Even your husband, if you're a woman, or uh, your wife, if you're a husband, uh, would relate your story somewhat differently, perhaps nuanced with insight and understanding from uh, a different perspective. And so it is when we come to Ephesians and we see woven in chapters 1 and 2 our story together with the eternal truths of God's working for our salvation and our deliverance. We find our story retold, and sometimes in a very unique and distinct sense, 
that we ourselves would probably not think of and not relate. For example, I'm not sure as you tell your testimony that you would speak about being dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. When we read that, we know that Paul is saying, all of us once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying on the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest. Pastor Dennis preached on this very text and brought to light the uh, tremendous transformation brought about by the love of God. And that's your story, and it's my story. I might not have framed it that way as I think about my upbringing. Outside, like Spurgeon related in his own testimony, I was an apparently very good child. No one could see the inner strugglings of the thought world and the heart world. They would just assume that I was altogether moral and pleasing, uh, perhaps disobedient at times, but nevertheless responsive to discipline. And yet Paul frames my story in a way that I need to think about and reframe. And it's not just there at the beginning of chapter 2, it's also in verse 11. Remember, remember, Let me illustrate it this way. My wife and I have two prints that we dearly love and we still have not found in our move. Uh, One is a Norman Rockwell print. We haven't really looked for it. Don't get get me wrong. But uh, uh, one is a Norman Rockwell print of Main Street, Stockbridge. And Stockbridge uh, was the place where Rockwell did most of his illustrations and work. And it's a beautiful winter scene of the a uh, lovely street there in Stockbridge, the main street. And, and you look at it and you recognize right away the names on the storefronts and the sidewalk and the Christmas decorations and so forth. And it's a lovely print. But we have another print of the town that I grew up in. And uh, it's a different type of print. It shows the main street as well. And there's the town hall and the Curtis Inn and the library and uh, Haggard's Drugstore. But then uh, the artist has taken the liberty of weaving in center school and uh, the elementary school and the high school. And these are not exactly geographically correct. They're just in the painting so that those who grew up in the town would appreciate the major centers. And in a sense, our testimony is like that second painting. There are realities that don't quite fit GPS description, but nevertheless are part of our hometown experience or our life story. And those things need to be woven into our testimony. Here the Apostle Paul sets them forth rather starkly and in a striking way. And again, I doubt very much that any of us even think of these things. I don't know if we have any Jewish Uh, members here in our congregation. It would not surprise me if we have some that are at least uh, part Jewish. Of course, our heart is broken by the uh, devastation and destruction that Hamas has wreaked upon the Jewish people. And as Rob so rightfully prayed that uh, God would bring about the salvation of the Jewish people through these trials and tragedies, 
and bring about the salvation of the Islamic nations as well, that there would be a great turning to Christ in, uh, in our present day. But here, as we think about our story, Paul relates it to the Jewish people in a very direct and striking way. You notice he refers to those who are called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. The uh, story of circumcision was at the heart of the faith of the Jewish people and the Israelites from ancient times. You remember the covenant promises that God gave to Abraham and the uh, incorporation of the sign of circumcision into that uh, promise. As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. And then notice, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So the sign of circumcision was very central to the covenant relationship that the people of God throughout the centuries had with their God. And interestingly enough, that very thing that was done to every male child portrayed what would happen to those who refused the sign. They would be cut off. They would be separated. And so circumcision represented, in a very real sense, both the unique relationship that Abraham and his posterity had with the God of heaven and earth, but also the curse that would come upon those who would not embrace that God by faith with the faith of Abraham. It was a two-sided coin, wasn't it? And it represented that. And it's important that we think about that when we consider what Paul's words are here. Because circumcision in itself was an ordinance instituted by God in order to distinguish between the believing and the unbelieving, between those who were privileged to have the promises and those who had rejected the promises and pursued the way of Esau and Ishmael and the nations of the world. And so as we think about what Paul is saying here, he's saying to the Gentiles, you did not have the sign of circumcision. You were separated from God. In fact, notice the lengthy list that he gives. At one time, verse 12, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. In other words, it was as bleak as it could be. 
If you were a Gentile living in the world without the promises of God's redeeming love, it was as bad as it could get. You were separated. You were far off. Need to think about that in the context of what was the purpose then of circumcision, that a people might identify themselves as those whose hope was in the Lord, whose faith was in the God who made bold and great promises, who declared to Abraham that I will be a God to you and to your children and to your children's children, who said that your descendants will be like the sand of the sea, or as the stars of the heaven. And that's what circumcision represented. Sadly, because of the fallen unbelief of many in Israel, it became also a sign of arrogance and pride. Instead of the provision of God's grace, it became a way of distinguishing between Jew and Gentile and despising the uncircumcised. And many reasons enter into that. And we can look back over the history of mankind and over the history of the people of Israel and see how many families suffered at the hands of their enemies, how many children were stolen and taken from the people of God because of warfare of the nations surrounding the people of Israel. How many men died in battle? How many women were left as widows because of the approach of their enemies? Yes, there's a narrative to be sure, just as there is a narrative in Israel today behind this battle between Hamas and the Palestinian and the uh, people of Israel themselves. Uh, yes, there are narratives there, but the fundamental distinction that Paul re here refers to and reminds us of as Gentiles is that we too did not have those privileges. We were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. That's your story. Now, maybe that never bothered you, but it should have. And as you think about the baptism of children in particular, why do you put that blessing on their life? Because you want them to know the Holy Scriptures. You want to know the precious promises extended to those who believe. You want them to hear every day the words of salvation and redemption, to know that there is a Savior that may be theirs by faith. You may not believe it here in Chattanooga, but there are portions of the world where boys and girls grow up and never hear of Jesus as the Savior of sinners. There are homes, even here in America, where the love of God and the story of his redeeming work is never told, where a child never experiences words of love and kindness and grace. There is a darkness in our world, and the Word of God breaks and exposes the darkness and brings to light the wonderful message of redemption and salvation. That's part of your story. Before you knew that Christ loved you and had died for you, that he had taken your sin upon himself, you were separated. You did not know. You did not have hope and peace with God. And so as we think about our testimony, 
we realize that we need to experience the incredible embrace of the insight that Scripture brings to your story and frame our self-conscious identity in terms of what the gospel has done. Through the gospel, you have been able to draw near to the living God, to have hope and to know his saving power. Notice then, secondly, how the apostle Paul describes this. And that is that now in Christ Jesus, verse 13, you who were who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Notice then that in the work of Christ, there is a horizontal uh, work in reconciling people one to another. And in the war-torn countries of the world, whether it be in the Ukraine or in Israel, we see in its most vivid form, evil, man against man, destruction, ruin. Of course, we see if in a far broader sense in terms of the cloud of evil that surrounds the life of man in this world. And we know that it is a very real thing, the animosity, the evil that one man might do to another and uh, does to one another. And the gospel is designed to bring peace between brothers, to unite us in Christ. But there's also that vertical relationship. And we need to realize that while it is the gospel that brings enemies together, it is also the gospel that brings sinners into the presence of the living God. So comprehensive is the power of the gospel. So amazing that it incorporates both aspects uh, into the work that God has done. Absolutely incredible how the gospel does indeed do that. How is it that it does that? We are brought near by the blood of Christ. The law of commandments and ordinances that once divided us separated Jew from Gentile most vividly as the court of the Gentiles was separated by a wall from the court of the Jews in the worship of the living God, the temple itself representing that distinction. God-fearing Gentiles often coming to worship in the court of the Gentiles. Jesus himself rebuking the Jews for not leaving room for the Gentiles to come. But nevertheless, that distinction was a God-given distinction. It was an ordinance, a part of the world of the temple. And we see how in the breaking down of those ordinances and those rules and regulations, God brought us near, near to one another as Jew and Gentile, near to him. 
One needs to conceive of it principally, as the writer of Hebrews reminds us, the curtain was rent and the way was opened into the holy, holy. Even the Jews could not enter into that sacred place. That space where if one entered, one would die if you did not enter according to the directions of the Almighty God. But that curtain was rent. And even there, peace was offered to those who are near and to those who are far. Those walls of separation torn down. How? Jesus himself is our peace. He is the one who enables us to draw near, not by declaring, not by acting, but by being. By being our peace. How was he our peace? He offered himself as the lamb that was slain to bear the sin, the evil, the ruin, the rottenness, the alienation, the separatedness. All of it came upon him. He was cut off for our transgressions. He is our peace. Isaiah 53 comes to mind, but also in the sister epistle to the Colossians, speaking of the work of Christ. There, the Apostle Paul uh, says, you were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, am a minister. And for the elaboration on there in Colossians is incredibly helpful, speaking to us of the mighty work of Christ on our behalf to draw us near. And even as we are about to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we ought then to recognize that it was his broken body. It was his spilt blood that became our peace. Not simply a, a nice deed, an act of kindness, a loving event. Upon him, your sins, my sins, the sins of the elect were laid. He is our peace. Notice then, uh, as we... Uh, neglect the text as we might like to uh, dig even deeper into the significance of some of Paul's statements. Notice the purpose in it. And here I want to draw it back, I believe, to what Dennis preached last week. I know this secondhand because of our growth group, but there in uh, 2.10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We were talking about that word workmanship, and I believe Dennis brought it out, poema, uh, the root of it being the work 
of God or the poem as, uh, uh, as we might uh, conceive of it and think of it, uh, the way in which God has written our story and fulfilled our story so that every aspect of your life, both spiritually as you have been drawn in to relationship with Jesus Christ and into relationship with his church, but also providentially, those hurts, those ills, those sorrows, those abuses that you've experienced in your life, all of those working as part of his design in order what? As the end of our present text, that we might be built up no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, here again, Hear it, your testimony woven into this holy truth. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God. Into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Who can comprehend these designs and purposes? That the triune God from all eternity would counsel together Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and purpose to create a people in his own image to allow for the fall of that people into the deepest and darkest of sin and then to provide a Redeemer. The Son himself embracing this plan though he would suffer immeasurable evil in the curse that was laid upon him, agreeing that in this way he might bring the greatest glory to the triune God, that he might manifest the love of our Heavenly Father in a way that a whole creation would see and marvel. And the Holy Spirit agreeing to dwell within sinners until they are perfected in righteousness. So that what? the triune God might dwell in them as a church, as a collective people, as the body of Christ. Who can comprehend these things? You remember Solomon as he dedicated the temple, how he, he spoke of the fact in his prayer that heaven and earth cannot contain you, O Lord. Surely this structure I have built is not sufficient to house you, but when people pray to this place and pray in your name here in heaven above. Well, if the temple of Solomon in all its glory could not contain God, how is it conceivable that God himself would create a temple comprised of living stones? You and I, each one prepared for that space, that place, that unique gift so that we might be the place where God is at home, where he dwells. 
where his spirit is. Beloved, as you look around you, you might, you might think, you know, that guy sure is annoying. That, that woman needs to quit doing that. And yet God looks at each one of us and says, that is my workmanship. I am preparing them for a very special place. And I will dwell in the midst of them. That will be where my glory shines in this radiant. Beloved, <clears throat> again, I get the privilege as one of the pastors and elders here to hear testimony, all of us as elders. It's one of the chief joys that we have to hear the testimonies of children, to hear the testimonies of uh, people of many years of experience and many church relationships and new believers that come in. As you think about your testimony and how you tell it, Apostle Paul lays out a roadmap right here. And fundamentally, when the story's finally written, it's going to be this. It's a perfect fit. It's a perfect fit, just as I intended, according to my design. What an amazing reality. Oh, how we ought to just let that shape the way we identify ourselves and think about who we are. It is a work that God is finishing. God is doing. And it will be that uh, beautiful poem, that beautiful poem that resonates with the whole music of the temple of God. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we hardly have the capability of wrapping our head about these things. And yet the scriptures are such a help, and for them we shall ever praise you, that we might be brought near through Christ, through who he is and what he has done, and through the sacrifice that he made. And so our hearts are full, and we praise you for one another. Pray that nothing would ever come between us, that we would ever love, and that we would ever give ourselves one for another for the building up of the body. And we praise you that nothing can possibly come between us and you, O oh God in heaven above because you have provided all that we need that we might enter into your presence in Christ. So we pray, grateful in Jesus' name, amen.